Okay, so thank you for those of you who actually have left some questions on the board. And perhaps we'll do a little bit of variation here between me endeavoring to address some of those questions and then open it up to anything that's just up for anyone in the moment, okay? Um, I mean, any one of these questions could actually form the basis of a whole Dharma talk, so it's going to be up to me to practice some restraint that I get past one question, okay? But one I will get past, I think, fairly quickly, although it does perhaps merit more time than I give to it, is a question about, you know, continuing to experience sleepiness in sittings, you know. I mean, for sure, people on retreat often don't sleep so well, um, and sometimes people bring fatigue in with them. And sometimes we don't know whether we're actually fatigued or whether this is genuine, uh, you know, acquaintance with sloth and torpor. Um, in any case, I, I, I would suggest, you know, that in terms of the hindrance factor, sloth and torpor, I would say, is the most disabling. It disables all wise response. Um, so I actually, these days, I'm much more into ruthlessness with sloth and torpor. Um, you know, I think patience is great for a day or two. Then I think we, we learn to practice patient ruthlessness. Um, which means that actually we stand up, we do not, and, and actually we make a commitment. I, I find this very useful, a commitment to an upright neck. A commitment to an upright neck. If you can just sustain that alone, that would be fantastic. Because that's the first thing to collapse in sloth and torpor, is the neck. You're gone. So patient ruthlessness, I would suggest. Um, so there's a couple of questions about, you know, quite understandably, about skillful ways of meeting the difficult. Um, you know, and of course, in this practice, you sit on a cushion, and there can be many, many moments of loveliness and spaciousness and calm and collectedness. And there can also be many moments when you, you are so close and so, uh, so, yes, so exposed to um, the difficult. Now, some of those difficulties in terms of emotional states, mental states, moods, in terms of thoughts, in terms of memories and issue, uh, uh, images, some of these are, are kind of momentary, you know. It, it's something that's arisen in that sitting or that walking period. And of course, what many people do encounter in practice is some of, sometimes the historical nature of some of that sense of injury, some of that difficulty, that is actually so historical that it has almost become incorporated into self-view you know, that I'm the kind of person who's worthless, or I'm the kind of person who's imperfect, or I'm an angry person, or I'm a failure, or I'm incompetent. And very often those self-views have come through, through repetition, through difficulty that is being repeated over and over. And, you know, so we use a lot of different words for this, and some of it is quite historical. You know, sometimes when people are more mindful of the body, for example, there's a very clear sense of how 
the body carries the imprints of injury, emotional injury, psychological injury. And, you know, from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, there was never, you know, this separation between, between mind and body was always seen to be so illusory, you know, that even things we don't even remember cognitively, the body still carries, carries grief, carries pain, carries injury. And so there's always that question of how, how are we skillful in this? Now, I would say the first pivotal teaching of the Buddha in relationship to all things, and it, on one level it sounds quite cold or quite one-dimensional, but for, from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, non-identification is the key teaching of liberation. Non-identification is the key teaching of awakening. And, you know, the Buddha said that is the starting point of understanding. It's actually the starting point of understanding and caring for what is being experienced. And this is pointed out so clearly in the Satipatthana, where every, every aspect, every domain of, of mindfulness begins with those instructions. To know the body is the body, to know feeling is feeling, to know the mind is the mind. And there's something extremely profound in that, because particularly in relationship to the difficult as well as the lovely to a lesser extent, the movement of identification is often such a strong impulse, such a powerful impulse. And the impulse of identification essentially brings all dialogue with the difficulty to an end because it becomes I am. You know, I am this. This is who I am. This is happening to me. Now, at the moment that that happens, there's a whole other chain, I think, of psychological events that happens. If this is who I am, um, if this is my self-definition, then the next step in that chain is, is for me to do something about it. You know, how am I going to fix this? All the agitation of how am I going to improve this? Or how am I going to get rid of this? Now, you can see in that kind of chain, the, the level of agitation is quite powerful and it's quite contracted. And the idea that I'm going to do something about it is entirely born of the initial identification that this is who I am. What we don't always see in that progression is the way that the self, the doing self, the fixing self, the improving self, the getting rid of self, is actually being shaped by the initial identification. So it's actually part of the problem, it's part of the difficulty, it's part of the suffering. And the, the identified self is actually not going to disidentify. Hmm? It's actually going to go along that chain of identification. So knowing the body is a body, knowing feeling is feeling, emotion is emotion, mood is mood, that cultivation of that way of holding, that way of embracing all experience, that teaching of non-identification is the beginning of having a dialogue with that which is difficult painful, sorrowful, agitated, contracted. Now, from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, um, 
even emotional, historical trauma is essentially healed in the present. So the past is healed in the present. Now the past experience keeps manifesting in the present in terms of body experience, in terms of emotional experience. And it's very good that we have some level of clear comprehension about that. You know, if I feel myself in a big mind storm or a big emotional contractedness or, or a huge body contractedness, it's probably unlikely that this is the first time I've ever encountered this. And so we see the way that the past keeps occurring and recurring in this kind of cyclical, repetitive way in the present. And it's good we have some clear comprehension in that. It's good to, to have some level of clear comprehension about how I am the person I believe myself to be right now. There's so many conditions involved in that, isn't it? Most of those conditions were outside of our control. But there's been so many conditions and events and experience in our life that has led us to this place in our present moment experience to say, this is who I am. Or this is how this is shaped. And it's good to have clear comprehension about that. But for me, it's so interesting in, in the teachings of mindfulness in the text. Um, the Buddha speaks about establishing mindfulness to the extent that is necessary for clear knowing. Hmm? To the extent that is necessary for clear knowing. So it's not about, you know, then going into the story, into the history, but that establishing mindfulness to the extent that is needed for clear knowing. Now, in terms of liberating the present from the grip of the past, the grip of historical patterns, the grip of historical experience, this is where actually the alchemy of mindfulness actually is, because it is entirely concerned with transforming our relationship to the past as it appears in the present. So if you think about it, you know, if I sit and I have a a sort of a, a memory of a terribly sorrowful time in my life, or if I sit and I suddenly pops into my consciousness, you know, a memory of, 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 of you know, harshness or cruelty. That memory is, is appearing as a memory, as a thought, but very often, of course, those memories and those patterns appear with the emotions that were associated with that time in our life. So I, I remember my, my angry father, and I, at the same time I remember the fear huh, that comes. It's almost inbuilt into that memory. Okay? So the memory or the image or the thought is not emotionally neutral in that sense. It is carrying this baggage. So the, the alchemy of mindfulness is to know that image and to know that body experience or to know that pattern or that thought or that emotion appearing in the present and to have this rotation where just because the associated memory arises it can that associated memory and the image can be met in an entirely new way with kindness with care with compassion of knowing this as suffering rather than who I am 
establishing that dialogue in the present through those different lens. And in a way, it is kind of liberating the present, not from the past, because we never do past erasure, but it is liberating the present from that coloring and that shadowing and that shaping, not from the thought itself, but through the associated emotions and the identification with them. Now, a lot of this is, of course, about emptying the moment of self, emptying the moment of selfing. And I sometimes think of this, it really sums up the entirety of this path, is that we're learning to empty all moments of selfing. And selfing is another word for identification. These are not two independent aspects. You know, and in the context of the Buddhist teaching, we're always looking at process and we're always looking at continuums. So we see that we often arrive at this place of identification, the I am. That's an arrival, but there's a lot that's gone on before there. You know, and before we arrive at that place of I am with all its, its reactions and agitations and strategies, it's really helpful to begin in our own practice to begin to spot that, that kind of continuum of process that actually begins with craving and aversion. Those movements towards something with liking, those movements away from something with fear or with aversion. These are, this is the beginning of a world construction. You know, I want more of this, I want less of this. This is good, this is bad. You know, this is how it should be, this is how it shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, I want this to go on, I want this to go away. The, those movements, those initial impulses of craving and aversion, if they're actually not seen incredibly clearly, then they strengthen. That's the nature of it. They strengthen. You know, they grow, they deepen, they become stronger. And craving and aversion really um, magnifies and intensifies into clinging and identification. That's part of the same continuum. And the, the, that continuum of magnifying into, into clinging and identification, that next step of that is, this is who I am. Okay? But that very nature of this is who I am sets off another continuum, doesn't it? I mean, it's all very well if we arrive at the place of this is who I am, that I'm fantastic and I'm lovely and I'm, you know, I'm the best meditator in the world. But that's not usually where we end up through craving and aversion identification. We usually end up in these far more contracted self-definitions of, you know, I, I can't do this, I'm, I'm a doubtful, you know, I'm unworthy, I'm incapable, I'm, I'm depressed, whatever it is. But those very limited self-definitions are very much often the triggers for a new process of craving and aversion to begin, aren't they? I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the kind of person who has this kind of experience, you know. That's not the person I want to be. So I think of all the things I might do to not be that kind of person, you know. And alongside of that is I want to be the kind of person who doesn't have this kind of experience, who doesn't have this suffering, who doesn't have this agitation, you know. I want to be the, the kind of person who has really good meditations, you know, and who looks like that person over there looks, you know. and you know, breezes through every day with equanimity and compassion. That's the kind of person I want to be. And that sets up its own process, doesn't it, of craving. 
So it, it's, it's really useful to see, you know, identification is this very, very productive field. It's not just identification. It's actually what identification is triggered by and what in turn it triggers. So the Buddha's suggestion for all of this actually was to begin to know this territory, begin to know this territory of contracting, begin to know the territory of defining, to begin to know the territory of impulse and reactivity, because this is the territory that is the classroom of our awakening. This is where we actually learn to empty the moment of selfing to empty the moment of identification. How does that happen? Well, through everything that you cultivate here. That happens through the cultivation of calm abiding. It happens through the cultivation of inner collectedness. It happens through the cultivation of equanimity. It happens through the cultivation of kindness and compassion. And it's so important that those intentionalities are really understood to be the intentions that actually liberate the moment of selfing and actually then also liberate the moment of dukkha. Okay. So it, it's so, I think, so important to see that this is a practice of some immediacy. It's not like we're practicing for later letting go. And we're not practicing, you know, rehearsing for later compassion, you know, or tomorrow's equanimity. You know, we're actually cultivating that in the moment that we're in. And there is always, you know, rather than getting into a kind of complex psychological analysis of the difficult, which is something over the top beyond clear comprehension, we're actually choosing to take that pathway of what does it mean to empty this moment of selfing? What does it mean to empty this moment of identification? So maybe that answers those two questions to some extent. Probably not adequately, but we can continue that. Does it, for, so before I move on, does anybody have any questions about that? Hmm? Yes, please. The more the intensity experience of what? Of, uh, so supposing it's, um, as, it's, as we were talking, this memory or um, complex of experiences occurring in you know, a memory. Yeah. Yes. And I don't think you should be surprised by that, actually. I think, you know, you know, very often in our life when mindfulness is less or investigation is less, there's a whole background symphony going on often of dukkha that we don't really pay attention to because we're too busy, 
you know, or were too distracted or too sleepy or whatever. But the, when you begin to wake up and actually become, become more, more precise, more investigating, um, having developing that capacity and that courage to actually begin to have a dialogue with the difficult, I think initially there is often a feeling that this magnifies and becomes more intense. Now I don't, and I don't think that that continues, you know. And and I I think so. We need to be very careful. And and I think that's really, in a way, almost the work of my mindfulness is it's bringing into the light of attention something that has been more background, and it's making room for the difficult to appear. You know? But we have to keep an eye on the uh, the climate of that room. You know, because of course, if it feels that the difficulty grows and continues to grow, that can trigger all kinds of anxiety and fear and 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 doubt and and you know apprehension. So we really need to keep an eye on the climate of that room to know when to stay with something. And I think this is an ongoing question in practice, isn't it? When to stay with something and when to step away from it. Hmm? And it's an ongoing question in our lives as well. You know, when, how much to stay with something, and when is it much more skillful means to kind of step back a little bit and take our attention elsewhere. And and it is an important question. And it's not like there's a you know an absolute one-dimensional absolute prescription for when to do that. But what we do need to keep our finger on the pulse of is, okay, is intensity being matched? by an equal degree of spaciousness, of calm, of equanimity, and curiosity, or is intensity beginning to overwhelm those qualities? So if intensity is, be, you know, because, you know, I think there's, there's too much of this business, of this kind of, uh, I, I'm not quite sure where, when, what happened when mindfulness got turned into this commandment of just be with what is. And, um, it's far more multidimensional and nuanced than that. So that is actually the piece to really keep an eye on. When intensity is not being matched by an equal degree of spaciousness and curiosity and calm. If that imbalance is starting to go like that, you know, where the intensity is up here and our inner resources down here, well, the outcome of that is probably fairly foreseeable, you know, that we will just get overwhelmed. Hmm? You get overwhelmed, and you know that I don't feel being overwhelmed is really the point of this practice at all. And I don't think it's good for people's minds or hearts. I think it, I think it undermines confidence. So I, you know, and I think it really um, feeds into apprehension and anxiety. So if we feel that that imbalance, that inequality, is happening, that might be actually a good moment to take our attention elsewhere or to bring more intentionally into the practice, um, a safer place of focus, metta practice, compassion practice, equanimity practice, um, to allow that balance to restore. Because w when that imbalance is happening, there's no dialogue going on between the difficult and the inquiry. You know, often what happens is just kind of gritting your teeth and hoping you survive. And, which is not actually very good practice. And so it's really good to see when that imbalance is happening, and it might be good. You know, you step away for a while, step back for a while, cultivate that which is wholesome, healing, liberate, uh, liberating more intentionally, 
come back into that space. So there's a fluidity there, you know, but I think it's also so important to, and I think I've said this already on this retreat, please don't get project-minded. Please don't get agenda-minded. You know, that this is a difficult and now my path is about kind of gradually whittling away at these difficulties. You know, do not make the difficult your primary object in the practice. It, it, it brings forth, you know, too much the mind that, you know, it, it can be a subtle sense of identification, sometimes not so subtle, you know, my list of imperfection. It's my list of imperfection. Now, think of what happens if we take the my out of that. The difficulty is still there, but on the other side of it is not some idea of, you know, a better me that doesn't have these difficulties, you know. A better question is, what if these difficulties never went away? You know, then what would be asked of, of, of the way, I, way of attending to them? You know, what kind of compassion, what kind of kindness, what kind of generosity, what kind of spaciousness would need to be cultivated in the midst of the difficulties that don't go away? So, you know, all of those aspects, I think, So there's uh, that's one question we've got. There's <laughs> um, a question here that might be. Okay, so how do I practice with not mind? So you know, it's a good question. How do I practice with non-identification? It seems straight, fairly straightforward. If it's not my pain, not my fear, not my fault, but what about not my responsibility and my concentration and my intention, not my aspiration, okay, and, and not my practice? What about choices, decisions, freedom? Where are those located? Um, I think It's so important here, to, the reason why the Buddha did not teach no self would be that it would make us both dysfunctional, psychotic, and ethically irresponsible. Hmm? It's why the Buddha did not teach no self. There are no good outcomes of endeavoring to go through life saying, oh, you know, I'm not here. You know, I could sort of rampage through this house murdering everyone, and it, you know, it wasn't me, <laughs> you know. I mean, it just sacrifices all, all, all of the wholesome within the path around intentionality and ethics, aspiration, sense of direction. So not mine is actually simply about taking away the level of clinging, and it's not about negation. You know, and in fact, the Buddha once said, you know, if you were to choose two views, either the view of having an eternal self or the view of having no self, he said it would be better to go for the view of having an eternal self because no self is so dangerous. Now, what we see in the pathway is, you know, I, I actually have a navigational sense self, and this is really good news, you know, because I, I, I get in the right car when I leave here. I don't attempt to drive off in your car. You know, I, I actually even know where I'm going, which is great, you know. Um, 
So we will always have an, a, a, a navigational self. But I think the Buddha's actually, I think we make this far too complicated personally. I think the, the, the teaching of not self is, is actually self evident. You know, if you examine your own experience, you do not find an eternal abiding, independent me. I just think it's, it's self evident, you know. And yet we move through the world. And moving through the world, we're asked to engage with the world. Moving through our own lives, we're asked to engage with a sense of what's most deeply possible for us as human beings. This is the path. This is what we would call the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. How do I move through this world engaging with life as it is in the most noble, the most compassionate way possible? How do I move through the, through the world of my own experience with the deepest sense of aspiration, the deepest ethical sense, the deepest commitment actually to awakening and to everything that is possible in a human mind? You know, we are here. It's, it's not, we are not just sort of anonymous blobs, interchangeable. We are here in this life that we're living, in this body, this mind that we experience. And it is here that we actually cultivate everything that is presented as being noble, aspirational, and liberating in the path. And it's quite possible for that to happen without me being so centralized without me being so centralized. But I really want to encourage you not to make this more complicated than it is. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting, always interesting for me, like teaching retreats, or when I look at talks given on retreats, about how often the teachings of non-self are kind of like reserved for the last night, you know, as if this is such a grave and profound and mysterious teaching that is beyond anybody, you know? And, you know, on some level I, I see the point because I, I think it takes a certain amount of stillness and quietude for us to undertake any meaningful investigation. But, you know, for the Buddha, of course, you know, when people rolled up off the street, you know, he would talk about non-self and emptiness. You know, it wasn't kind of reserved for graduate students. This is what he talked about. And he talked about it through looking very, very clearly at his own experience. Which in a way brings me on to this next question. And I, I just want to kind of uh, translate this a bit, just for those of you who may not be familiar with the concepts. There's three ways that the Buddha talks about self. The first of those is in Sakaya Ditti in Pali. This means personality view or self-view. The second way is in Pali the word mana, which means the conceit of self. And the third way that the Buddha talks about self is in terms of shunyata or emptiness. So shunyata is really only an extension of understanding both personality view and metta. Because shunyata is just seeing that non-self is not just about this particular formation of a person, but that when we look around us in the world at all phenomena that come into existence, all phenomena, all formations that are born, we see that we do not invest in any of them an independent self-existence. Okay. 
that positing of an independent self-existence into formations and conditions is really, really only an extension of positing an independent self within this person. Okay, there's a lot of ways that we see our, 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 ourselves doing that. You know, when we go through life and look at the world and say, "Oh, that's beautiful," or "That's terrible," or "That's ugly," or "That's that's amazing," or "I need that to make me happy," or "That makes me really unhappy." What has actually happened in those moments is that we have located an independent self-existence into an experience or into a formation, and in doing that, invested it with certain intrinsic powers. That's the way that we make a self out of other things. That's the way I make a self out of a, a car or a plane or a tree or a microphone or a bell. Whereas if seen clearly through the eyes of understanding, what I actually see is, is change. I see the bell's innate inability to make me happy or unhappy. And I see the bell is born of a matrix of conditions coming together in a certain way. So that positing of a self outwardly in things is really, I think, only an extension of being identified with personality view and conceit of self. So Sakayaditi is, is, is fairly easy for us to spot a formation of personality view. If you think back even to the time that you got up this morning, or you think back through yesterday, you've probably seen your view of self change many times. You know, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm spacious, I'm agitated, I'm hungry, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm optimistic, you know, I'm bright, I'm dull. Uh, you know, you've probably seen your view of self change a number of times dependent on what is being identified with. And there's some basic building blocks of personality view, the body and the experiences of the body, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. So there's some fairly core building blocks of personality view. And we see whenever there's identification with any of those, we, there's actually the birthing of the self of the moment. Now, personality views, some of them, of course, are much more historical and ancient. Sometimes there's stories that have been told to us by others about who we are. And yet on a moment-to-moment -moment level, we actually see how those, those views of self are an ever-changing, uh, ever-changing landscape. And actually, uh, even though we see that on some level, we don't always get it, you know, because there's a certain insight in that seeing that re really actually suggests to us that no view of self can be relied upon as being an absolute, that no view of self can actually be relied upon as being a personal description. So actually, the contemplation of those changing personality views is certainly an invitation, an encouragement to release that tendency to seize upon a fragment of our, mis our experience and mistake it for being who we are, mistake it for being a whole, which is what, of course, identification does, is it seizes upon a fragment of experience 
and then defines the entirety of our experience by that fragment. So personality view is, is, is an ever-changing phenomena. Some of that shaping is very, very familiar. Sometimes it takes us by surprise. But the, the fact that it is so seeable, so observable, those changes are so observable, is a genuine encouragement to give less credibility to some, some of the, all of those views, actually to give less authority, to give less credibility to those views. You know, that, that is a kind of view that has been hatched, it's been, it's been born, and it can change in a moment. Have you noticed that? It can change in a moment. So to give less credibility. Now, mana is a... Le- I'm not quite sure why mana is not spoken about more in this teaching, the conceit of self, because... I, the more I reflect on it, the more I think about how it actually shapes the whole of our experience and shapes certainly our relationships, shapes us relationally in relationship to others, shapes our sense of aspiration, our sense of impossibility. So this conceit of self, which is it's kind of an awkward translation, but... It, by the way, this is said to be the very last fetter before full and complete awakening. So feel heartened a bit by that, you know. Um, you know, <laughs> and I think it is because of the subtlety of it, you know, and how unconscious it often is. But mana is presented in three ways, and some of you, of course, are familiar with this: inferiority conceit, superiority conceit, and the conceit of sameness. Um, there are people in the world who suffer from superiority conceit. You know, I'm better than you, I'm more perfect than you, I'm more lovable than you, I'm more acceptable than you. And, I mean, there are, there's sure to be some. Um, it, it, mostly what I see in, in practice fields is, is the predominance of in, inferiority conceit. And when that's in, unbearable, to take refuge, an unref- unsafe refuge, in the conceit of sameness. Because if I'm really lost in this inferiority conceit that, that I'm somehow, I have a, a deeply hidden view or a deeply embedded view that somehow I'm less perfect than you, less able than you, less worthy than you, less, less competent than you, less lovable. I mean, if, if, I, if that is my primary default mechanism, that is such an unbearably painful way to live that I would probably be inclined to try and move towards the conceit of sameness. We're all like that. You know, we're all like that. Everybody's like that. You know, everybody does this. Everybody's always doing that. And it actually feels a little safer and a little bit more collective, doesn't it? To share that mediocrity and misery than to feel (laughs) alone in it. So I can see how the mind gets inclined, you know, wants to go there. You know, no, everybody's like that, you know. And you, you hear those statements a lot, don't you? That's what people do, you know. It's often those kind of grim, impossible-to-change kind of mind. But I actually think that that's a, that's a kind of safety mechanism. I think it's a safety mechanism when the, the, the loneliness of inferiority conceit becomes too much to bear. 
And inferiority conceit, you know, is that kind of more unconscious view that essentially I'm less able than you are. I'm less I'm not as good as you are, you know. You know, and, and you know, we see people who seem to have certain kind of fruitions and you know, we doubt them, probably just pretending, you know, they're not really fully realized, but probably just pretending, you know. Or we we can't bear it, you know. Or or we have a lot of envy. I mean, mana, the conceit of self, you know, is, is a very, it's an ongoing state of evaluation and comparison in relationship to others, you know. We, we actually see somebody, cast our eyes on somebody, and immediately some comparing is going on. Who we're safe with, who we're not safe with. Um, you know, who who is someone to be envied, who is someone to be dismissed or put down. So it's a very relational conceit, it doesn't stand alone. But of course, inferiority conceit can influence absolutely every single aspect of our life. You know, I won't ask a question because my question is probably stupid and it might, you know, evoke criticism or, or dismissiveness, you know. Uh, I won't open my mouth in a group because I fear, you know, getting judged or, or seen to be kind of dumb, you know. I won't aspire to too much because I'm very likely to fail and I don't want to keep experiencing that feeling of failure, you know. Awakening is surely not possible for me. I just don't have the right credentials, you know. I'm somehow not, not worthy of it, you know. Um, uh, I, might be, I might be timid. I might be constantly on hyper alert for criticism. And, you know, the unreturned stony smile in the hallway can send me into cascades of self-judgment and self-blame. And the thing is that, that uh, also the more difficult part, I think, of inferiority conceit is that we can be incredibly generous and kind, sincerely so, towards others and have great difficulty in either receiving kindness and compassion and generosity or extending it inwardly. You know, I think sometimes you know of the the Mudita phrases from the Sri Lankan text. Some of you are familiar with, you know, the appreciative joy phrases. You know, that that goes something like this. You know, how wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. Now, I, I always ask people try that for yourself, and see what happens. How wonderful I am in my being. I delight that I am here. Anybody squirming <laughs> and say, no, no, that's okay for others, but there's conditions around here. So it becomes very difficult to extend those most lovely healing qualities inwardly. Now, my experience is that mana and personality view, conceit of self and personality view, are always interacting processes. You know? If, if I have a sort of inferiority conceit, then actually that's going to influence how I see other people and how I see the world and what I identify with. <coughs> Excuse me. So that unreturned smile will immediately trigger the formation of personality. If you, you know, they, they just don't like me, you know, I'm not likable. And that in turn will go back to deepen that sense of manner, inferiority conceit. And that sense of inferiority conceit was set up to perceive other people and to perceive the world through those eyes where everything is taken, you know, as being a kind of confirmation of my incompetence and my inadequacy. 
Now, inferiority conceit, by the way, can manifest as a certain despair and resignation. You know, I, yeah, I come on retreats, but awakening? Don't think so. You know, a little peace would be good. You know, or a little calm would be good. But liberation? No, that that's for somebody else. It can manifest in that kind of reduced level of aspiration, possibility, but actually it can manifest as its opposite, also, as striving, you know, because I am so kind of incapable and unworthy, I really need to make that effort to become someone who's more competent, more lovable, more acceptable. So it actually can manifest as a good deal of striving and forcing. It's good in our practice to be mindful of this interplay and to know that it's not a terminal condition and to know that it's not a life sentence. And it almost goes back to what I was talking about before, about learning to empty the moment of selfing, learning to empty the moment of clinging, learning to see how the mind is working in relationship to others and how it works in relationship to ourselves in terms of self-definition and self-description. And to know that it's almost the job of the practice is to liberate the moment of that clinging. And all of those moments actually are part of a larger picture of awakening. It's a long answer. Thank you. It's lunchtime. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.